the book of Galatians begins. We talked about this, but chapters 1 and 2, with this autobiographical information, Paul tells kind of his story, and what he'll do is he's going to defend his apostleship and defend the gospel. He's going to kind of lay that out. Now, that's kind of how this thing starts, and what happens is the reason Paul should do both of those things is because there are those false teachers that are coming in, and what they'll say is, you accept Jesus, but you also need to add on here uh, obedience to the law. And so they emphasize things like circumcision and some other things probably. Now here's the thing, in two ways I think about this. In one way, they would say this in order to gain acceptance with God, but it also appears at some level where they're saying this so that you can keep right standing with God or excel in your standing with God. So they, they could possibly do both. They could preach kind of both messages there. And so I think it's important to note that. Now, chapters 3 and 4 are going to be more theological, like defining all these things and trying to help you understand it through um, working through the Scripture and seeing, as Paul's going to pick up today, and kind of give us a clarity about that. Now, one of the things that kind of shifts here at some level, not completely, but this, that we are saved by the Gospel and we continue by the Gospel. It's important because we might say, and I really honestly... I feel like sometimes when I was growing up thinking about the Christian faith, I would say Jesus is going to save me from hell. But He doesn't really save me in the present. The way I save, I almost like save myself in the present by being a good person and doing what everybody's saying I should do from the Bible. And I think it's important to say that is because, because we understand that we are both, and just listen to this, one, one person said we are not only justified, you know, have right standing with God, in Christ, but we're also sanctified by faith in Christ. We never leave the gospel. We never leave it. If we leave it, we're moving away from some, the, the most the vital, life-changing uh, gospel message. When we move away from that, we can begin to start saying is, the way I'm going to stand before God, the way I can be acceptable before God, is by doing everything I can to, to, to make God love me more. The gospel teaches absolutely opposite. It's of what Jesus has done who makes me approved by God, and it's by faith that I move forward trusting in what He's done in the present as I'm, as I'm seeking to honor God and, and, and give glory to God in the present. So I just think it's important to say that. Now, the other thing is, is Paul's going to do this. He's going to go and say, okay, he's going to start talking about their experience, and then he's going to move to the place where he's going to talk about the father of the faith, Abraham. So he's going to back up like 2,000 years and say, how did Abraham enter into relationship with God? How did Abraham continue in relationship with God? It was by faith. And so we'll, we'll talk about wh why that's so important. But I just think that's, that's very valuable to say, okay, here's the thing, and this is what God is going to do. And, now, and what, it, what he's going to go on to say is even that the Spirit is now working within you and you are saved, not again by your works, but by the work of God in your heart. Now, Let's start in chapter one, or chapter three, verse one. It says, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified." He's calling them. He's saying, "You foolish people, what are you doing? You're witless. You're not thinking. You're idiotic. This is like you, you're like you left. You checked your brain in at the door. You're not thinking about what has really taken place." It's very strong language. He's saying, and he has to do that because you've done that before where you've had to speak to someone in a very stern way to wake them up. You have to say, wait, stop. What are you doing? Don't do something foolish. And sometimes when we see somebody 
throwing their life away, we come alongside them and say, you know, are you, wake up. Don't be foolish. You're, you're almost like blinded to what you're doing. Even here as we're looking at this, we see that it's almost like Paul saying, who's bewitched you? It's like, who's put you under a spell? Back in those days, they talked about the evil eye. Somebody stuck the evil eye on you and it, it gets you all like crazy and you don't think clearly and you're just completely now, you're, you're almost like re- rejecting what you know and you're, you're just mesmerized by this craziness. And so Paul's going to deal with them this way because it, there's very difficult things taking place. Now here's the thing. Why is it so easy for us to be bewitched by someone coming alongside us and saying, you get to add something to your salvation. You know why? Because that's our default. We naturally want to save ourselves. We love to tell stories of human saviors. When you read about even like old religions and stuff, there would be these great, for instance, the great gods that they would speak about, and they look like men, just really powerful, strong men. We love to think about saving ourselves. It's easy to kind of move into that way. These people who are coming alongside them are teaching false things and Paul is going to confront it. Now, I just want to say a couple of things about that. Just think about this real quick because I think it's important to say this. There are influencers out there who are sometimes so-called like knowledgeable Christians who real easily like draw young believers away. That just happens. Actually, it happens a lot. I remember... When I started really growing in my faith, trying to understand the Bible, one of the things that happened was um, I grew up in a family where my, my parents loved God's Word and they, they listened to God's Word and they listened to good preaching. It was a little easier because I already had this kind of basis there. And then one time my dad said, okay, Jared, I want you to go with me if you, if you would like to, to learn how to study the Bible. And I went to this two-day seminar and they just kind of helped walk you through that. Later down the road, just some other things kind of come together where I was listening to those guys and they were listening to other people and all of a sudden I started understanding here's like good Bible teaching and here's not good Bible teaching. And it was really important for me early on. God was very gracious to me in my life to put me somewhere where people like really studied the Bible, really knew the Bible, read the Bible, and, 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 and when, they, when they talked about it, I could see it. That's one of the things we do here just for you. When I'm preaching up here, I'm not like saying I read a verse and then throw the verse away and then I just talk about whatever I want to. I read the Bible and I say, you see how this is connected and this is connected and this is connected and this is connected? So for instance, if you go to a church one day and you're trying to find a church, you need to go to a church where as they're reading the Scripture and expounding it, you could say, I see where that's going. It makes sense. That's the pattern. That's the argument. That's the flow of this text. And so I just say that because I think it's important to understand there are a lot of false teachers out there who are leading people away from the true Gospel. And it's real easy to do if you don't know your Bible. Because anybody that's a good flashy teacher could throw you off course. So I just think it's important that you know that. Now the second thing to understand, and I would say be in a solid church. It's not wise to be this Lone Ranger Christian and it's not wise to attach yourself to a people that do not preach the Gospel of Christ and when they open the Bible, you couldn't really follow it, but they came up with some real crazy ideas that are real attractive. Dangerous. 
So another thing I would say is this, that there's demonic influence. There are spiritual powers. Satan is going around like a lion, the Scripture says, seeking to who he may devour. There is satanic workings in this world. The Bible says in, in, in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God. Do you know what that's tied to? It is tied to putting on the truth. If you look at the armor of God, it is putting on the truth and praying by the power of the Spirit that you would walk in that truth. That's what putting on the armor of God is. If you want to fight the spiritual battle, it's, it's fought by your understanding and knowledge of God and His ways. And walking in light of that. So I just think it's important that we see that because it is one of those things that, that there is truly demonic doctrine in our world. And Satan wants to destroy your soul. And he does so by taking you away from the Gospel of Christ. And I just want to say one last thing about that. There are people who are really religious that will lead you away from the Gospel of Christ. They're really good at following all the rules and they will press upon you. This is how you're supposed to live, but they will, they will really begin to alienate you from the Gospel. And that is a danger that Paul is facing here. Let's thing we need to see that as we're moving forward. Now, here's what he's going to say. What, notice what he says. Look back, and I know we're spending some time in verse 1, but I want you to see this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, here, what is he saying? You need a vision of Christ. You need to ca be captured by the Gospel of Christ. You need to understand what was accomplished. Now, what does that mean? They were not there when Jesus was crucified. They were not. They didn't live in the same area. They probably didn't even know when Jesus died. They, they, they really didn't. What does he mean then that he's publicly portrayed as crucified? What Paul will say is he preached Christ crucified. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, Because our gospel, when Paul went to the people in Thessalonica, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. What's he saying? There is this passionate, clear, laid out gospel. Paul made it clear. It was vivid before them. It was in the power of the Spirit. And it was given with full conviction. He was proclaiming this message. As they heard him, they understand, understood the gospel. Now we would say, what does that mean? It probably it means a lot of things. But I was thinking this morning, we might just go back and remind ourselves that on the cross, Jesus suffered and died. Jesus was mocked and beaten within an inch of His life. It was so horrific that when He was told to carry the cross, He could not carry it. Someone had to carry it up there for Him. When I say He was beaten, there was, He was beaten with the, what they call the cat of nine tails where, I, don't, I believe it was like 39 lashes. I hate to say that because I may be off. But, but what would happen is they were beaten. His flesh was torn. He was, just, he was bleeding profusely. And so now he's been beaten at this level and he's going to go to the cross. And he goes up there on the cross and they're going to, nail his, they're going to put nails in his wrist and in his feet. And he's going to be set up there on a cross and so he's hanging. And one of the things, if you read about much about that, the, the reality is if someone hangs in that way, they begin to not be able to breathe over time. So they would have to push themselves up, dragging against a wooden 
a rough wooden cross. He's pushing himself up and it's tearing his flesh in his back and he's pushing up so he can get a breath and he falls back down. The physical suffering is unbelievable. We can't even imagine what that would be like. Christ is on the cross as the one who's lived a perfect life. Now he's suffering as a criminal. But it goes further than that. Because behind that physical suffering, that's the danger. Sometimes we behind that is the spiritual suffering. He was tormented by, the, by, by God. He was under the wrath of God. God. God was unleashing His divine fury upon Christ. What One of the, the songs that we sing is every idle thought and every evil deed was crowning His blood-stained brow. Jesus was suffering for His people. For all those who would believe, the sins of those people were placed upon Him. And He was crucified on the cross and He suffered greatly, most greatly behind the scenes that you could not see. God was setting His wrath on the Son. There's a point where Jesus comes to a place and He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He is fully alienated from God. He suffers hell for us. I think it's important Paul would clearly communicate that to them. He would say, God is holy, you are sinners, and Christ came and He lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for you and was raised victorious. So we don't need Jesus just to be an example. Jesus didn't go to the cross just to be an example. Jesus didn't go on the cross because you needed a kind of a partial Savior and y'all kind of worked together. You did a little, He did a little. Jesus went to the cross because you needed a substitute for your sins. So I think it's very important. Paul's going to nail that because he has to bring them back to that reality. And let's keep moving here because I think it's important. He moves in verse 2. He says, he asked four questions. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You know, the Spirit, as he's laying this out, he says, he contrasts believing with observing the law beginning with the Spirit and attaining, and attaining um, with human effort, he's, he's kind of laying a foundation where he's saying, you either begun this way and then you kind of are going this way, but don't you understand how it all started with you? One of the things about the New Covenant is the filling of the Spirit in the life of the believer that they might know the Lord. Now here's the thing. Paul's going to make this case. To believe the Gospel is to tra- stop trying to save yourself by trying to be a good person and living by the rules. He says you've begun by the Spirit. You're not now perfect, being perfected by the flesh, are you? So I think it's just important that we see that because what does it mean? It's one of those things when we look at this is if you're relying on the Gospel, then that's what we're supposed to do. But if you're relying on your own works to get you there, this is a great problem. This is a rebellion against the truth of God. The Gospel says that um, you do not strive to complete yourself that Jesus did that for us. We are believing what He accomplished. You are complete in Him. You're perfected in Him. Positionally, you are in Christ and all of what He has accomplished is put to your account. We are resting in that reality. Now, what He's going to say then is, is practically, as you're trying to live this out in this life, if you and I are trying to do that, I think it's important just to say we have to run back to the Gospel in doing that. And remind ourselves of what Christ has accomplished, what He's done, and what has He empowered us to do by the Spirit. 
God is working in us to transform us and make us more like His Son. We move forward in our Christian life by running back to the cross and walking in faith, believing what God has made us. Believing what God has already done for us. Believing what who we are in Christ. We are righteous in Him. We've been made new creatures in Him. And walking in light of that. Paul says that the way that the Spirit entered your life is the way that the Spirit advances your Christian life. The Spirit came to transform you and He's empowering you to live further with Him, to walk in obedience to Him. I wanted you to think about something. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see this real quick. By the way, is it hot in here to y'all? Getting a little hot. Somebody want to run around and catch the air and see if we can't like want to pass out up here probably not but i am kind of soft you know what i'm saying americans we like air okay no all right ephesians chapter five i want you to look like at 525 husbands love your wife as christ loved the church and did what and gave himself for her He doesn't just give the command, husbands, love your wives. I think that's very important. Why does he not do that? Why does he just stop there and say, why don't he just say, hey, just do this. This is what it means to be a Christian, just do this. What is he running you back to as Christ loved the church? He is pushing you back to the Gospel. He is driving us back to the Gospel. He wants you to see vividly Jesus Christ crucified. That's what He wants you to see. I want you to see Christ crucified. I want you to dwell upon the Gospel. I want you to see what Jesus did on the cross for His church. That's how you love your wife as Christ loved the church. I want you to keep running back to the truth of the Gospel. And the Gospel also tells us that we who are dead in our sins have been brought to spiritual life. Turn to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So he's not just saying, again, he's not going, he's going to say, listen, listen, go back to this message that husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then he's going to say, here's the thing, I'm not just pointing you back to that without any power. Because I have worked in you. The Gospel tells us that we have received new life. Ephesians 3 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. It's not just that we're left alone in this. Living out the Christian life, applying the Gospel to all of life, is something that God is working into us. He is working this resurrection power by the Spirit within His people to accomplish His will. So that God gets the glory not just for your salvation in the future, when you get to go to heaven if you would say something like that, but also your salvation in the present. What God begins by the Spirit, He finishes by the Spirit. He keeps working that truth, these truths, into us. As we go back to the cross, see the Christ crucified, resurrected, and we say we were dead in our sins, but God came to us and brought us to life. Very important. The change in the Christian life is radically different than just saying, just do this. 
Sometimes that's what you get when you get around Christian people. You ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to do... No reference to the gospel. You walk away from the gospel and try to live the Christian life, it is going to be heartbreak over and over and over again. You're wanting, running away from the life source that God has provided for you. Verse 4, he says, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Sorry, if you go back, I'm sorry I didn't tell you this, but go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, and he's talking about suffering. Now, I think what, what we would say is when these guys came to the gospel, they struggled. I mean, there was struggle involved. Many of them were persecuted for trusting in Christ and abandoning their old ways. And Paul's going to say, are you going you, you to go back into a system like you lived before? A system of trying to work your way to whatever God you believed in? He said, I mean, have you really just, is the gospel a waste on you? Well, another thing I think you would see is, I think there is a tie to the Spirit here. You see that in 1 Thessalonians where it says, And you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit. There's this element where he says, You've begun by the Spirit, and you've seen the Spirit move you to be able to live under suffering and persecution and difficulty, and Christ is working in you, and He's working that into you. Are you going to abandon that? And start trying to live this thing on your own and return to the way that you used to do where you want to save yourself by your own merit like every other religion in the world? Verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or hearing by hearing with faith? What's he saying? When God came to them, Paul potentially, when they heard the Gospel message there, it was probably accompanied by some miraculous things. And they said he's saying like, what happened there? Did, did, was that because you were working real hard to get to God? Was that because you were living according to the law and you were doing all these things? Is that how this happened? No, he's saying, listen, when you heard the Gospel by the regenerating work of the Spirit, you believed this Gospel, and what accompanied that was the Spirit's filling in your life. He filled you by the Spirit, and He started moving among you, and He was doing great and miraculous things among you. It's very important to see that. This did not come by their own effort. It came by God's power showing up in their life. So are they going to go back and say, well, we'll just start trying to do these works of the law and, and, and just discount all that God had already done? He's building a case for them saying, from your personal experience, what happened? Now, this is one thing. I, I struggle with whether I should talk about this this morning, how to lay this out for us, but... I think it's important to think through this, so I'm going to read a couple of things to you. When you think about your own life practically walking in the Christian life, Tim Keller lays out a few things I think that are very helpful. The root of disobedience is particular ways that we seek to control our lives through works righteousness. We must continue to repent and uproot these systems in the same way that we became Christians by the vivid depiction of Christ's saving work for us and the abandoning of self-trusting efforts to complete ourselves. We must go back again and again to the Gospel of Christ crucified so that our hearts are more deeply gripped by the reality of what He did and who we are in Him. And you say, well, what, are you what is that talking about? He is saying, listen, when we reject the Lord, when we go after these things, when we say we're struggling in sin, oftentimes what we're doing is we're, we're kind of going back to this system where, where we're saying we can save ourselves in some way. So I'm going to give you an example of how that looks. And he talks about using anger in this way. 
when we talk about dealing with anger, let's say you're struggling with a sin in your life, one of the areas, like for instance with anger, maybe what you need to ask every time you struggle with anger is what's going on behind the anger? Why am I, why am I and when I'm trying to live this Christian life and, 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 I, and then I kind of go fall into anger, what, what, what's going on behind that? And I think what we have to do is ask the, a few questions, and I'll just mention a couple to you. We should ask, if I'm angry and unforgiving, what, what is it that I think I need so much? What is being withheld that I think I must have if I'm to be complete, to have hope and to be a person of worth? What's going on there? What is driving that? And I think it's important to ask that because we have to say, listen, if it's comfort, then what's my functional Savior? If it's control, I like everything to be under my control and my ways, what's my functional Savior? What am I trusting in? See, our hearts are always running back to, our hearts are always running back to this works system, this works righteousness. And why I am angry at someone is tied to, because some, for some reason I'm believing that something else will satisfy me, something else will change my life, something else will make me better, something else may approve me before God. You might say, for instance, some people will say cleanliness is next to godliness. And so we come up with all these things that approves us before God, that gives us meaning and worth, that we are trusting in. And what the Bible says over and over is, you need to ask the question about your yourself is saying what am I trusting in what am I hoping in is it really in the Christ am I running back to him we must repent of our self-righteousness of wanting to be approved on our own before others and before God we must repent of that and we must go back to Christ crucified we must trust in the spirit's work we must replace those saviors those things in our lives that we think will bring us satisfaction with Jesus we must pray that God would transform us in that way and the root of our anger will wither. I have to keep going back. Jesus saved me from the penalty of sin and He saved me from its power. And so my goal in the Christian life is not to just try to get rid of my anger. I run back to the Gospel and I say, at the, at the Christ came and I'm complete in Him and I'm fulfilled in Him and I can rely on Him and not in some works righteousness form. I think it's important to note that because it's so hard for us, I think, to really think about change by looking back to the Gospel and trusting in the power of the Spirit. Now, as Paul continues, he goes to verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's going to go back 2,000 years and he's going to say, Remember Abraham? How was he saved? How did he continue in the faith? It was by trusting in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was without a child in this passage. He's wondering what God's going to do. The Lord says, I'm going to send one that's going to come from your, your line. It's going to come from your seed. It's going to be between you and your wife. You will have a son. And what, is, what does he do? He believes God. He trusts in God to accomplish the promise that He had laid out for him. How was Abraham saved? Some people get real confused about that. In the Old Testament, New Testament, how were people saved? How could they stand right before God? They did so by faith. They are trusting in what God has said. It was not by them mustering up enough faith. It was the object of their faith. They're believing God for what He has said that He would do. The reality is when Abraham is standing there, listen to me, believing God, he's still a sinner. 
He is still a sinner, but God reckons him righteous. What does that mean? God placed upon him righteousness. He placed within his account account righteousness. It's like a banking term. He he placed within Abraham's account the righteousness he did not possess. It didn't make Abraham righteous. Abraham still struggled with sin. We read the story of Abraham, but God counted him as righteous. He imputed that to him. Abraham was saved just like we are saved. Jesus' righteousness is placed to our account. Our sin is given to Him. I think it's important to see that. That's why we can say in Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not that you are righteous. It is that God has given us His righteousness through His Son. Abraham was saved just like we are saved. And Paul is making that point for them. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. How do you enter into the Christian family? Now some of you might say, well, you got all these, there's these adults here and they have kids. And, and so there's some adults here, they've been trusting the Lord, they've been following the Lord, so don't their kids just get a pass? they got a little card in their pocket and say, hey, dad's in, I'm in. doesn't work that way. People get confused about that in this life. But the reality is the only way we come is by faith. It's by repentance and faith. It is how everyone who has ever been saved was saved. They are trusting in the Lord. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's stop here we'll just real quick. Do you know a lot of people that believe in God? And I know a bunch of people who believe in God. I mean, I rarely meet someone who says they don't believe in God. Rarely. Do you think that saves them, brings them into salvation? I mean, all the time I meet somebody and say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. What does that mean? What God? Who is this God that you believe in? Well, I believe in the God of the Bible. Is, is that, does that bring salvation? In James, the, it's very clear that the demons believe in the God of the Bible. Do you know that? They believe that God exists. Does that mean they're saved? I think it's important to nail this because one of the things is that I've thought about, for instance, with, with people that I've talked to over the years is um, they say they believe in God, but they do not believe God. They do not believe in what He has said about sin. They've created in their own minds what sin is. They define sin for themselves. They say, well, I can live like this, but I believe in God. They do not believe that sinning against God deserves eternal punishment. That's why you meet someone who says, I believe in God and me and the man upstairs are good and one day we'll work, I've settled it all with Him. And in the end, I think I've done enough good than bad and I'll make it there. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? So you can believe in God but not believe God, not trust God. There are a lot of people that would say, again, they do not believe God that they're as sinful as He says they are, and they do not believe that God has provided a way for salvation for them, that Jesus is their only hope. There are people who believe in God that do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ. They believe in God, they do not believe God. 
So I think it's important just to note that because it is one thing to believe God, it's another thing to believe Him for what He says. Verse 8, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Here's the deal. God, we studied that. Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to him and said, Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will they enter into that blessing? They will enter into it the same way Abraham entered into it, by faith. That's how they enter into the blessings of God. God preached the Gospel that the whole world, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to this Gospel. That they would experience the blessing of Abraham, meaning they would experience the right relationship with God. God. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He is saying that the faith founder was a man of faith, and everyone who follows is that. If you are a part of that family, you are a person of faith. You're not trusting in your own works. You're trusting in what God has promised to Abraham that through your seed, and what we'll find out in Galatians 3, the seed is Christ. Through Him, all will bring, that will bring salvation to all who believe. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Here's what he's going to say. These religious teachers who are teaching you that you've got to walk in a certain way, you've got to do these certain things to be right with God, Here's what he's going to say. If you take that system, you better perfectly obey it. Now the Bible is very clear. No one can live up to the standards of God. That means you have to walk perfectly in every way and never stumble. Sometimes I meet people who say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm a sinner. Maybe. Have you ever seen the law of God? Have you ever sat before that? Have you ever lived a day inside your mind? How many times have you not acted on something, but you have thought it? How many times are there like lustful thoughts in your heart? How many times have you wanted to deceive when you didn't? How many times have you looked at what someone else had, and, that, and, and you say, well, I wish I had that, and I wish they didn't? All these things going on within our hearts, and he's saying, if you want to go that route, you better live perfectly, because if you fail in one area, you're guilty of all. The only hope you have is to trust in Christ and what He's done. If you do not, you will experience the curse in the future and the present. In the future, if you live by the law, you try to live by it and you fail to obey it, the law will come crushing down on you and you will face judgment. If you trust in that and hope in that, but not only that, in the present... You'll, you'll, you, you know somebody that's really law-oriented? They're very judgmental towards others. And on their bad days, they think you're judging them. They live by the law. They spend their whole life in that way. They live under condemnation and they condemn others. Somebody that loves to do that, they're always seeing all the faults of others. They, they're, they're constantly in turmoil personally as they do not believe the Gospel of Christ, that He alone brings salvation. Paul will say the righteous will live by faith. We enter by faith. We continue by faith. We are to walk by faith. Our whole lives are to be centered in trusting in what God has done for us. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
What is, what is that all about? He's going to say, listen, the only hope you and I have, the only hope we have to, for salvation, the only hope we have is that, that there was one who became a curse for us. Christ took on the curse we deserve. We, we did rebel against God's law. And Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the law, He went to the cross as if He were a lawbreaker. And He was punished for us. And He experienced the wrath of God for us. Jesus became a curse for us. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sins on Himself. And, and not only that, listen, the, the, the deal of curses everyone who's hung on a tree, what would happen in those Old Testament times is that when someone had done something really bad and they were maybe stoned to death, they would take their body and they would hang it on a tree and it would be a sign that they were under the divine judgment of God. Sometimes when you read like or watch an old cowboy movie or whatever, they'll leave the people hanging. So it'll be a sign to all that these people are under like condemnation. We do that with our, um, oh my dear lease, coyotes. We don't, I, don't have, I don't have anything to do with those suckers, right? And what we do is we shoot coyotes and we hang them up and say, look coyotes, you enter this property, you're going to come under the judgment. All joking aside though, when we look at this story, when you see this and understand, Jesus came under the divine rejection of God so that we would not have to be placed under that. Why did He do that? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So that we might experience the blessing of God instead of the curse of God. Jesus was cursed for us so that we might experience blessing. It, it, to be cursed is to be alienated and to suffer, but He brought blessing by being a curse for us. We have all the rights and privileges of being in God's family now because of what Jesus accomplished. We enter in by faith. We experience His presence presence now by God the Spirit working in us. He is the seal that shows God's approval with us. He is abiding with us. The reality is we enter in by faith. The Spirit comes filling our lives and He transforms us. He is working in us and it's a promise that God is with us. So let's just go back and think about what's going on this morning. Paul begins and says, listen, do not believe anyone who is teaching you that you can somehow reach God on your own. Do not believe anyone who would teach you that and to say that you can stay in good relationship with God on your own. You come into, by faith, you continue by faith. And anytime you try to step back over into this works righteousness, what you're doing is you're saying, in some way you're saying, I'm going to start trusting in these things. And when I get angry and I get upset, I realize what's really going on is somehow I've stepped back in there and I'm saying, look, I can find fulfillment and satisfaction by living these certain by these standards. And anyone who breaks those standards, and I'm going to come down and bring wrath on them. But the reality is we must run back to the cross of Christ and say, I find my satisfaction, my approval, my, my, my fulfillment in what Christ did on the cross. He is my only Savior. I do not need to be saved by living a certain way. He is my Savior. So today there's two things that I think you could come away with. There's two destinies. One is a blessing and the other is a curse. To, be, to live by reliance on the law to save us or sanctify us will end up in a curse. What does it mean to be blessed, though, of God? 
John Stott says, as it's unfolded in these verses, the promised blessing includes justification, being in the favor with God, eternal life, being moved into fellowship with God, and the promise of the Spirit being regenerated and indwelt by Him. This is the priceless threefold blessing of the Christian believer. So there's one who lives by the curse, the other one who embraces the Gospel and is blessed, who trusts in what God has done. There's also two roads that a man can go down. The first road is called the law. To rely on the works of the law is to be under a curse. The second road is faith. To walk down it is to experience blessing. The first one looks at it and says, I'm going to trust in my works. The other one says, I'm going to trust in the finished work of Jesus. I don't know where you are today, but I would say you must humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I cannot save myself. I can't save myself eternally, and I cannot save myself in the present. I need Your working in me, and I trust by faith that You are, and I know that You work by Your Spirit, and I am resting in that. And when I struggle with sin, I'm running back to the cross. That is what we are to do today. We are to run back to Jesus over and over and over again. He is our hope for salvation now and forever. And we must trust Him to do it. And I ask you this morning, if you are outside of Christ, if you are hoping in some way that you're going to save yourself, that you would abandon all hope in that, it will only end in a curse. If you will repent and believe the Gospel, it will only end in blessing. As we conclude, listen to these words. We must learn to do this as the means by which we are to, to trust in Christ, as the means by which we are justified, gain eternal life, and indwelt by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we just come to You today. Reminded that we enter in by faith. And we finish by faith. God, I ask You today to please cause us as we come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the hope we have is in Jesus. That He is our only hope. He is our life. He is our all. In Christ's name, Amen. If you would stand.